I'd ask that you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. On September 20th, 2015, RGF held its very first worship service. And if you'll remember, for those who were there, we began by gathering with our brothers and sisters over at, Redeeming, or at North Shore Baptist Church. And we were gathered together. We were singing worship songs, just like we were singing here. And um, then we began walking through the middle of that service and down into the basement where we had our very own church service. The sermon that was preached that day was from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and was entitled, The Beginning, based on both the first time we were gathering, as well as the very first words of Mark's account. Mark writes, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel, of course, just means good news. Everything in the Old Testament is only good news in the sense that it points forward to Jesus as its fulfillment. The law is bad news. It is bad news because you and I can't keep it and it declares us guilty. The prophets, they deliver bad news because they condemn us for our sin. The sacrifices, the feasts, the Sabbaths, those are all only good news in that they point forward to the one who was to come and fulfill them, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is only good news in light of the New Testament. Today is our final Sunday morning service together as RGF. And as such, I've entitled our sermon today as The End. Now, as, as we go through this, our focus is going to be very simple, but a foundational overview of the personal end results of Christ's ministry in our lives. Our focus is not really going to be on what you may expect when I say the end. It is not about the end of the Bible. It is not about the end of all things. We are not focusing on eschatology or end times studies today. This sermon is intentionally going to be about the end of what happens with you in your individual lives and for us as a church. This sermon will be without any outline. It will be without any overarching structure. Instead, we are simply going to follow the flow of the text itself as we walk through part of Romans chapter 8. So please ask me, uh, join me in asking the Father at this point to help us as we do the work of study together. Our God and Father in heaven, I pray that today as I proclaim your word, that you would apply the word to the lives of each and every person in this room. We acknowledge, Father, that without you, we can do nothing. We can't hear, we cannot understand, we cannot apply unless by your great mercy you do a work in us. So, Father God, I pray that even as familiar as these words are for people, and perhaps even as familiar as these concepts and theology and doctrine are to people, I pray, God, that you would help us today to understand you more, to see your face more clearly, to put into practice what we have learned from this more readily and with more zeal. God, I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to live for Christ. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Everyone who's ever traveled has asked this same question, and you know exactly what question I mean. It's the one that has been uttered aloud by travelers from generation to generation, and it has been pondered and worried over in the minds of many who never dared to even ask the question out loud. Now, there are many reasons why you might find yourself asking this very question. Perhaps you're on an airplane over the Atlantic, and all of a sudden you hit a particularly nasty bit of turbulence, and at this point you tighten your seatbelt and you grab the armrest as tight as you can, and you begin to ask yourself the question, am I going to make it? 
And you know that you've asked this question, perhaps in a different context. Maybe you were in a hurry for a job interview and you're driving along the LIE and then all of a sudden you pop a tire, you pull off to the side and you open the trunk and you realize that your spare is also flat and you begin to panic and you call anyone that you can think of that might be able to come and assist you. And as you're doing this, you're asking yourself, as you're looking at your watch, am I going to make it? Or remember back in gym class, for many of us, we remember when they actually made you run in gym class back in the day. Do they still make people run a little bit? Okay. They used to make us run three miles, and perhaps uh, you were one of those people who foolishly ate a foot-long Subway sandwich and drank two quarts of chocolate milk right before you ran, and then as you're starting to cramp up in that second mile, you ask yourself, am I actually going to make it? Last year, we traveled across the country with five children and a dog, and uh, we visited almost all of our extended family and 24 states, nearly 9,000 miles of driving. And I distinctly remember being halfway through Pennsylvania on our last day as we were returning and stopping because our children had reached their absolute limit of being in the car. And for reasons that I will only leave to your imagination, I was reaching the very end of my sanity and I wondered, are we actually going to make it? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter refers to us as sojourners. According to the concordance, this word literally means someone who's just passing through. Now, the King James Version, I like, it uses this translation a little differently. It refers to this word sojourner as the word pilgrim. Both words grasp this central idea of our journey. We are traveling towards heaven. Now, there are many bumps in the road that may cause you to question whether or not you're actually going to get there. Perhaps, like in the airplane, there are going to be external circumstances leading to fear and doubt. Or like with a flat tire, you might experience some kind of a setback in your desire to serve the Lord. Or as in the running example, maybe you act foolishly and you do something that will slow down your ability to run the race towards heaven well. Or maybe like my minivan of chaos, you may be so overwhelmed by the world around you that you long for that destination, but you don't know if you're able to take the steps necessary to actually get you there. Romans chapter 8 may be the very best chapter in the entire Bible for the Christian who is asking themselves this question, will I get there? It is perhaps the most uplifting and encouraging chapter in all of Scripture for the beleaguered soul. Paul has just completed a brilliant explanation of the gospel in chapters 1 through 7. And now what he's going to do is lay out some of the benefits that we have due to being in Christ. Now, we're not going to be able to cover the whole chapter today, and we certainly will only be scratching the surface of the small part of this chapter we will cover But if you have your Bible open on your lap, I would ask that you please turn at this time and look at uh, verse 28 along with me. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Traveler, we have a promise. We have a promise that all of the trials and tribulations and turbulence and temptation, all of that that you encounter along your journey are specifically planned and prepared and purposed and placed in your path by a gracious God who has sovereignly devised all of these events. Now notice that Paul does not state that this is a new doctrine. He does not say, here's something to think about. He says and grounds this entire thought in what we call in the theological world an epistemological certainty. He says, and we know. He can say with certainty because he has already established the two necessary conditions to know this truth. First, that God must be all-powerful. He has displayed this throughout 
many parts of Romans already, but particularly we see that in Romans chapter 1 when it speaks about his divine power in creation and the upholding of the world. We also must see that if God, uh, that God is good. If God is all-powerful and if God is all-good, then it means that it would be irrational and nonsensical that he would predestine to have children only to cause them to suffer or struggle without purpose or cause. So your sojourning on this earth has been meticulously orchestrated by the master author of history to include both joy and heartache, both gain and loss, both strength and weakness in order to do something very specific in your life. And this plan has not been left ambiguous. He makes it very clear in the following verses exactly what all of the billions of events in your life are designed to do. Jump down with me to verse 31 for a moment. Another very famous verse in this chapter where it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I cannot tell you how many times I have looked through children's church material or vacation Bible school material or Christian greeting cards that quote verse 28, and then they jump directly down to verse 31. They completely skip verses 29 and 30. But these verses, 28 and 31, are like borders. The verses in the middle are the country. They explain entirely why all things work together for good and why God is for us and no one can stand against us. It reads, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, we can meditate on these words for literally months and months and still be mining out truth from them, but for this morning, I simply want to see a few basic elemental truths that will encourage us to answer that question, will we get there? First, I want you to notice the scope of this statement in relation to verses 28 and 31. You see, verse 28 does not say that all things work together for the good of every person. Instead, it speaks of God's gracious providence working all things together for those who love God. God. Verse 31 asks the question, if God is for us, who can stand against us? The question is, who is us? It is the exact same group of people who meet the criteria in verse 28, those who love God. So you're probably thinking that this is obvious, and if so, that's good. You should think that. But it should be very clear that these promises are exclusive. And the question that we should be asking ourselves is, how does one become part of this group? And the problem with only quoting verses 28 and then jumping to 31 is it would put all of the, bear, uh, the burden on our shoulders. Consider, it would appear as though the only thing that someone must do in order to be on God's team is to first love him. Follow the logic. If God is for us... And if that word us refers to everyone who loves God, then we find ourselves as the primary agents in determining our relationship to God. But verses 29 and 30 are the ones that actually explain exactly how it is that we become someone who loves God. It takes us back before the beginning, before Adam and Eve, and before there was light, before there was even a blank canvas for God to create and paint this entire universe upon, there was just God. And at that point, when God laid forth his providential plan for the entire unborn universe, this is what happened. Now, you might wonder, where do I see in verse, uh, Romans chapter 8, where do I see anything in verses 29 through 40 speaking about 
the predestining work of God happening before the foundation of the world? The answer is I don't, but we find from other parts of Scripture exactly why we know the timestamp on this event. For example, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 explains exactly when this took place. It says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So when did this predestining work take place? According to Ephesians, it occurred before the foundations of the world. So the scope of those who find themselves experiencing this grace of God and his kind providence and the defense of God from our enemies are those who were both foreknown and predestined from before the foundations of the world. The second thing that I want you to grasp from these verses is the unbroken nature of the flow from one state to another. Notice that all of those who were foreknown by God were also predestined by God, and those who were predestined are the exact same people who are going to be justified, and those who were justified are the exact same people who are going to be glorified. It is not some subset of those or some completely other category where God is saying some people will be foreknown, Others will be predestined, others will be justified, and others will be glorified. The question is, are we going to get there? And the answer is, all of those whom the Lord has saved are going to make it. All of those who were foreknown in the beginning are the same who will be glorified. And we are going to make it because of God, not because of us. God is the one who finishes everything he starts. This part of Romans is referred to by theologians by being called the golden chain of redemption. It is called that because it is an unbroken sequence of divine work from beginning, before the beginning, until after the end of this creation. The work is all of God, therefore he gets all the glory. The third thing that I want you to gather from these two verses is the purposes in the heart of God for doing this work in your life. Why is it that God predestined you? What I'd like to do quickly is show you three reasons that are offered in these verses. First, it is because he foreknew you. Obviously, that is what comes right before that in this text. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And some people have falsely understood this to mean that God knew in advance exactly what you would do in your life. He knew all of the actions that you would take, and therefore God chose you because he knew that you would use your free choice and your desire to choose him. In other words, it is a way to say that he loved you because he knew that you loved him first. Now, this is absolutely backwards and unbiblical, and it's clearly not what Paul is saying. Even from a straightforward reading of the sentence, it does not say that God was looking at a specific set of facts about you. If Paul wanted to say that, he would have said something like, for based on what God knew, he used this as criteria for predestining specific people. But Paul doesn't say anything like that. Instead, it says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. God was not looking down the corridors of time, and he wasn't setting his focus on specific events or works or character traits in you. He was looking down the corridors of time, yes, and he was setting his affection on specific people for whom he foreknew, not what he foreknew. In other words, there were some people that God knew and some people that God did not. Now, this is obviously not a reference to understanding or awareness. Of course, God knew about all people existing, but you could compare this to something like Amos chapter 3, verse 2, when God says to the nation of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. 
Did God not know about the Assyrians next door? Did he not know about the Australian Aborigines down south? Did he not know about the Japanese or the Native Americans or anyone else on the planet? Of course he knew about them. He speaks about some of those nations in Amos chapter 3 itself. But when he's speaking to Amos, he says, this nation, this people alone have I known. That term carries with it intimacy. We see that again in Genesis chapter four, verse one, where it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Clearly, there is more than just mental awareness going on in this scenario. This term, know, in the Bible indicates intimacy, and in Romans chapter eight, God is revealing to us that he has set his affection upon a particular group of people from before time. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. You could also say those for whom he had affection or those whom he foreloved, he also predestined. Now, there's another reason why God predestined his people. But Paul does not say that we were predestined to salvation. Rather, he says we were predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Am I ever going to get there? That's the question. But where is there? What is the place we are attempting to reach? Generally, we could answer that by saying, we're trying to get to heaven. And yes and amen, that's true. But when we talk about our journey in the Christian life, it is much less about moving locations and much more about personal spiritual transformation. God predestined us and did so to transform us and to conform us into the image of Christ. His plan has always been and will always be to make you like Jesus. And the good news is that you are going to make it. If you are a Christian, he is going to use circumstances and the local church, and he is going to use the word of God and the Holy Spirit and even your own death to radically strip away all of the sinful and self-loving parts of you that dwell in your flesh, and he is going to replace them with God-honoring Christ-likeness. And that is an amazing gift. Now, there's a third reason that is listed here that God predestined people. Paul says that it was in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The word firstborn in the Bible can be used in multiple ways. Sometimes it is used uh, chronologically. For example, my oldest son is my firstborn son. Asaph is my firstborn. Firstborn. But the firstborn in the family was also entitled to and entrusted with the lion's share of the birthright. And so oftentimes, the word firstborn was used to reference preeminent authority. It would take the son, uh, the firstborn son would be the one who would take over for his father and the one who would rightfully represent him. So one of the purposes for which God predestined a people to himself was so that Christ might be preeminent and then he might be glorified over many brothers. It's an abundant, gracious gift that God would allow wicked sinners like you and I to be brought into his family and even be called brothers of Jesus Christ. But the main reason for our adoption is not just for us, but the main reason for our adoption is so that he might be preeminent. So what then shall we say to these things, Paul says? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he makes the argument, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What an amazing verse. I'm not sure if there is any verse I can imagine in the Bible that is more mind-blowing than this. 
Here, Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser and says, if God was willing to give you Jesus, is there anything he'll, he'll hold back from you? Is there any good gift that he will keep away from you? Now, this verse has often been co-opted by the folks that would proclaim a prosperity gospel. And they will say, well, then this means if God gave us Jesus, why wouldn't he give us health and wealth and a Lamborghini and a private jet and whatever else they might include? And of course, this is a caricature of them, but this problem is far greater than just televangelists. This problem goes right to the heart of most believers. I think that most people who arrive at this verse don't know what to do with this term, all things. It says he will graciously give us all things. Well, what does that mean? If it doesn't mean he'll give us all a private jet or a Lamborghini or a bank account overflowing with money, then what does it actually mean? What is Paul saying here? Sometimes the best way to start defining what something is is by stripping away what it's not. So let's first learn from the context what all things must not mean. Look down to verses 35 and 36 where it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, God is not going to necessarily give you a life that is free of those kinds of trials. Tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword, which by the way means execution, these are the kinds of things that we pray against. We say, Lord, please don't let us experience those kinds of things. Yet, according to Paul, these are regular occurrences in the lives of believers, so much so that he says we are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered all day long. Every day there are believers who are being executed. They are being martyred for their faith, more today even than there were in the early church. This is not abnormal or outside of the realm of possibility for those of us who are in Christ. So clearly, Paul is not saying that all things means that God is going to give us temporary earthly comforts or he's going to get us a, a, give us a get-out-of-trial-free card. So if that's not what it means, what is God promising to give us? Here, we see at least four things that we can glean from the text. And these, there's many more that we could find from external sources in the Scripture. But for here, today's purposes there are four things that I would like to rest in for the remainder of our sermon. First, we see that God gives us a gift that we are no longer guilty before God. Verse 33 and 34 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who could bring a charge against you? There are many people in my life that I have wronged. I have sinned, I have hurt people, I have failed people, I have let people down. I have been selfish, I have been rude, I have been arrogant, I have been ungodly. That is who I am. That is my biography. And I have repented of those things, but the record of my sin is still out there. And people remember the things that I've said. People know the things that I've done. People could stand and they could make a charge against me. They could point out all of the ways that I have sinned against them and against the Lord. And many times, let's face it, they'd be right. And they could do the same thing to you. But the good news of the gospel and the promise of God that he has given us in Christ is that we have been justified. If God declares you righteous, who is there that could stand and condemn you? It is his courtroom. 
And this is specifically true because of the second gift that we see, that you have an advocate before the Father. Verse 34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. A lawyer once told me the difference between guilty and innocent in the courtroom depends on the quality of your attorney. That's not true in God's court. There are no loopholes in his laws. There are no exceptions to his standards. He is not ignorant of any statutes. He cannot be bribed or manipulated or coerced. He is a just judge. But we have an advocate who stands for us in that courtroom. Just as we heard earlier in the Lord's Supper, that we have someone who mediates for us, who goes between for us. We have the judge's own son who stands there in that courtroom and says, I paid for his sin. There is no more for him to do. All of his wickedness has been laid on me. I have given him my perfect record. And if you are in Christ, you will continue on. You will make it because you have an advocate before the Father. The third gift that we see here in this text is uh, being indicated here by all things, that God will give you the promise of victory. When Asaph was just a toddler, and long before COVID killed these kinds of things, I took him, my oldest son, to Chuck E. Cheese in the Skyview Center Mall in Flushing. Have any of you ever been there? This was like right after it opened. It was awful. Um, But we had a little time to kill. We were stuck there. We were waiting for someone to pick us up, and we had some quarters to burn, so I showed him how to play a game of whack-a-mole. If you're unfamiliar, in this game, there are animatronic ground rats that will pop out of various holes, and your job is to smash them with a hammer. Who thinks of these things? And being a very little boy, there was no way that Ace could smash all of those things as they popped up. But standing right behind them, right behind Asaph, rather, was someone four times his size and at least twice as agile as a toddler. That's right, that was me. So I let him hold the hammer, but every single time a mole dared to show his nasty little face, too far away from Ace's hammer, I reached around and I smashed that thing with my fist. And the reality is that the house always wins at Chuck E. Cheese. There's no way you're going to beat those games. But I'm sure that we got a couple of extra tickets because of the assistance that I offered to my son. He was guaranteed victory. He was guaranteed to be a conqueror, not because of his skill in smashing those moles, but through the assistance provided by his overly enthusiastic father. Similarly, every single Christian is told that we are not only conquerors, but Paul says that we are more than conquerors. Paul cannot even seem to find a word that fits what we are. He modifies it by saying, well, think of a conqueror. Think of someone who goes into war. They defeat the enemy. They're absolutely victorious. They come back and they're having the parade. You are more than that. And why are we more than that? How can he say this? He doesn't indicate that it's due to our innate ability or skill or zeal or effort. We are conquerors through him who loved us. Because of Christ, we are guaranteed the victory. Are you going to make it? Yes, you're going to make it through him who loves you. Which leads us to our final gift that we see here in the text this morning, which is the love of God. Verse 38 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, the reason that all true Christians finish the race boils down to the fact that we have a God who loves us with an unending and unbreakable love. Even on those days when you fail, he is holding you 
And to clarify, I don't want to say that all people who have ever professed the name of Christ are going to get there. If there is a consistent pattern of unrepentant sin in your life, it probably indicates that you do not know the Lord and you have not yet been saved. There are many who think that they are loved by God who are categorically still his enemies. And if that is you, I plead with you today, trust in Jesus Christ. Hear what we've been saying. See the Lord's table that we've observed. Consider Christ. Turn to him, look to him and live. Trust in him and be saved from your sin. But I want to say to those of us who are in him, what better news could we ever hear than to know that God's love has been unwaveringly applied to us? And that for, for all of eternity, we are only going to grow in our knowledge and experience and appreciation of his affection that before all time began, he set upon us. Brothers and sisters, we're going to make it. And we're going to make it because he loves us and because he is going to hold us fast. Let's pray. Father God, I, I pray for every single person here that we would have courage to know that through Christ, we are made to be more than conquerors, not relying on our own strength or wisdom or skill, but relying fully on him. We ask, Father, that today that you would give us joy in the working out of your will in our lives. As you conform us into the image of your son, sometimes it hurts. I think of John 15, where it speaks of pruning, that those branches who do belong to you, who are receiving vitality from Christ still require to have snipped away the elements of their lives that don't quite fit like they should. Please, God, we pray that you would help us. Help us, Lord, we ask, to make it there, for we know we cannot do it on our own. But God, we thank you that you will hold our hand and that you will never let go and that you will carry us forward and that you will be the one who presents us in glory and that you will finish what you start. We thank you for all of the, what you've done in the gospel for us, our salvation is completely and wholly dependent upon you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.